0: Good afternoon, everyone. It's good to see you. Well, in honor of Youth Sunday and because there is someone here who was in my youth group, I am going to share a story that I would not share if it was not Youth Sunday. It's about a time that I got into a fight and I lost. So I was in my 20s. I was just looking for something to do, like a hobby or whatever. I was bored. So. I found this martial arts studio called Aikido and it caught my attention. So if you're not familiar with Aikido, it is a martial art that is basically built on neutralizing the attack of your enemy. You redirect their motion, the momentum, you come to a peaceful resolution. That's the whole point, nonviolence, great. So I walk into the first class, I meet Sensei Moore, I've got my fresh kimono, I don't know what it's called, I've got the thing on. And he says, hey, would you like to come up and demonstrate what we'll be doing today? I was like, okay. So I get up there and he stands in a fighting position and he starts to circle me. And he says, come on, come on, we're going to fight. Don't worry, I know it's your first day, I'll take it easy. I said, okay, no problem. And if you consider getting punched in the face within the first three seconds of fighting, fighting, he and I fought. (laughs) I looked at him and he said, I'm so sorry. I thought you were ready. I said, nope, was not ready for that. Then he said, would you like to sit down? Now, I wanted wanted to say yes, but when he punched me, I heard a sound that if you hear the sound, you have to redeem yourself. It's everyone in the dojo go, ooh, and then the Snickers. So I said, no, 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 let's do it again. So I learned a lesson. I watched Sensei Moore very carefully. I tracked all of his motions. I moved with him, and he punched me in the face again. (laughs) And then he said, why are you letting me hit you in the face? And I said, excuse me, I'm not letting you hit me in the face. (laughs) He says, okay. I mean, do you want to go again? I know I should have said no. The (laughs) apostle Paul would tell me I should not do the thing that I should not do. I really shouldn't do this. But I went ahead and I did it. I said, let's go. Now, the way I prepared this time was more of a mental game. I focused on every fight I had with my brother, my big brother, every martial arts movie I ever seen, Jet Li, Bruce Lee, Kung Fu Panda, everybody was on the mat. I only had one goal, I did not want to get hit in the face. Anything else could happen, I didn't care. And so we started, we move around, he looks at me, I look at him, and then he did not hit me in the face. He kicked me in my stomach, (laughs) and I fell on the ground. At this point, Sensei Moore has my attention. He has everyone's attention, because that was a brutal move for a non-violent sport. And I'm wondering, maybe this is the wrong hobby. (laughs) And so he explained something to me, and I have never forgotten this. He explained that when I went with him when he moved to the left, and then when he moved to the center to attack and I came with him, I engaged him when and where he wanted me to engage him. He said, that's not the thing that you're supposed to do. He said, before you do anything, you first have to know where you are. And then he looks at the class in a very like deep mojo like dojo voice he goes whose dojo is this and they're like you dojo sensei And they're like and whose mat is this he's like you're a mat sensei whose equipment is this they're like you're i'm like okay i get it <laughs> he says you need to know where you are standing before you plant your back foot if you're in my dojo on my mat with my equipment Meeting me where I want to meet you, when I want to meet you, you will lose every time unless I decide you should win. If you're standing in the wrong place, you must get to the right place. And then I thought, this is the best Groupon ever. <laughs> More on that in a minute. We'll revisit that story. We're looking at a story called Esther. It was one of the last stories to be placed in the Old Testament. And it was placed because 10 years after all of these events ended, letters went from where Esther was, from Esther and Mordecai, to a group called the Sanhedrin. And they worked very hard to convince her not to do it, not to put it in. And she worked even harder to tell them that they should. And the reason she said they should is because people need to know. And they said, we know. People will know. We don't want them to know because they don't like us. And they're going to hate us even more. And she wrote a letter back that said, I don't think you understand. Our enemies know what happened. You are confused. They know what our God can do. Our people don't know. They have to know. And the question they needed to know was this. Can God's people fail in faithfulness to God so much that his purpose fails? Can we block God's Purposes. Is that possible? One, it is not all on you. As you look at the story of Esther with me today, find all the ways that it is not all on the people in the story. God is the foundation of this story. We are under his mighty hand. But the second thing that you should look for in this story is how is God working through. His people it's not all on you but it does work through you there are opportunities there are times there are moments choices that have to be made where people did intentionally become the vessels for God's purpose so let's look at the first one it's not all on you we are never not in God's dojo so this is a very tricky doctrine If God wins out every time, his will beats our will every time. The question is, well, what about human will? We can't fully understand how God's will prevails through all of the ways that we are unruly and all the things that we do. We don't quite understand it. But time and time again, the Bible's clear. God is in control. And therefore, things are never out of control. Well, not totally. Esther is an illustration that's the most realistic to our lives today that I have read. And if you've not read this entire book, I encourage you to do so. I am not going to read the whole thing. Traditionally, if you go to a traditional, what's called Purim, which is a celebration of this book, they would read the entire thing. There'd be actors and smoke and noise and costumes. I'm not doing that today. (laughs) But I will tell you part of the story, as fast as I can, as dramatically as I can, and I'll take a couple of pauses so you can catch up. Here we go. As we enter the story of Esther, chapter one, we find God's chosen people in an increasingly chaotic circumstance. They are Jews, including Esther. They are far from home. They're not in Jerusalem. They're about 1,000 miles away from the temple and about 100 years late for the return back home from exile. They remained in the Persian empire. Now, the Persian empire is run by a man named King Xerxes. He's married to a woman named Queen Vashti. King Xerxes has a party. He's got plans, he brings his friends, they're partying for weeks and weeks and weeks. And at the end of this party, he says, call my wife. I want her to come out and show everyone just how beautiful she is. And she says, no. King Xerxes was not happy with this response and so he banned her from his sight. He signed a decree, and we'll learn soon that decrees cannot be unsigned very easily. Now we're in chapter 2. Xerxes doesn't have a bride. He doesn't have a queen, so he has to find one. And so what does he do? Of course, he calls everyone in all the 127 provinces, send me every single beautiful virgin that you have, and we're going to pick someone. And so we enter Esther. Esther is an orphan. She's young. She has a cousin named Mordecai who is taking, out, taking care of her since her parents died. And she finds herself among all of these people in this strange situation. And of about 25 million people, Esther finds herself in the final running. And so for 12 months, Esther goes into the palace. She is given perfume and maids and special foods, all these things to prepare for one moment with the king. And finally, her moment comes, and she was impressive. He loved her. He liked her. And immediately, he made her queen instead of Vashti. Now, outside of this castle is her cousin, who is concerned. They don't have cell phones back then. He's not sure what's going on. So he's outside the gate. He's walking. Sometimes he gets in. He hears things. He listens. He communicates with her. He cares. He's there every day. One day, he's there, and he hears something that he was not supposed to hear. A plot to kill the king and so he calls by paper esther and says hey this is happening tell the king esther tells the king she tells him that mordecai is the one that uncovered it they do an investigation and they find out this is true they find the two guys that wanted to kill the king the plot is foiled yay done take a break for a minute because nothing happens for six years That's it. Esther's there. Mordecai's still walking outside that castle for six years. And then, time jump. We meet Haman, Haman, whatever you want to say. Usually people boo at this point. (laughs) Thank you. So, somehow this man is promoted to be the king's highest ranking official. And Haman relishes flaunting power. To the point that he commands everyone to bow down to him well mordecai refuses to bow and so the guards go to mordecai and they say why won't you bow and mordecai answers i'm a jew so confused they go to haman and they say mordecai won't bow he said it's because he's a jew and then something happens Haman could not handle this information. He went to the king. He warned the king that there's a very odd set of people scattered about the kingdom who didn't follow the same customs and the same ways and they were a threat. He convinced him to again sign an irreversible decree that ordered the death of every Jew in the kingdom, man, woman, child and it will be done on the 13th day of the 12th month and Haman was going to personally finance a massacre across all 127 provinces from Ethiopia to India. That sounds like a very unmeasured response until you see behind the curtain. Enter God who was there the whole time but now you get to see him. The animosity between Mordecai and Haman is representative of a much older story. Mordecai is related to King Saul. Who was King Saul? The very first king of the Jews. He had a job, an order from God to do something very specific. He was supposed to take down and destroy all of their arch enemies named the Amalekites. Well, Saul doesn't do that. So, when Mordecai sees Haman, he knows that Haman is related to this person. How is Haman related to this person that they did not kill? Well, if you read the book, it tells you right away Haman is a descendant of the Amalekites. He is the descendant of the king that should never have continued. And so, when Mordecai doesn't bow, Haman remembers. You slaughtered all my people, and now you won't bow. And Mordecai saying, my people went into exile for things like this. I will not bow. And now we are up to speed. Even though Saul, that long ago, did not follow the will of God, when God told him to kill the Amalekites, God spoke those words. In Isaiah 55, 11, it says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So, regardless of disobedience, God's promises will succeed. So, Mordecai, Haman, Esther, the king, unknowing to them, are being guided by God's steady hands in the middle of what seems like, for us, a chaotic situation. This brings me to a second bit of information. Our second point. So, if it's not all on us, how does the story run through us? Are God's children protected? Can we do these things when we have no power? Back to the dojo. I get up off the floor. I go to the, the excuse me the sensei, and I say, okay. So let's say I get to the right spot in the dojo. I'm at my best possible position. All right, tell me how I'm supposed to fight. He says, I don't know. What do you mean? He says, it all depends on who's standing across from you and who's standing with you. Initially, Mordecai asks Esther to help. He gets a message to her. He says, go tell the king. And Esther's immediate response was this. I have not seen the king for 30 days. If I go in there unannounced and he does not point a golden scepter to receive me, I'll die. And then Haman responds, Mordecai responds, don't think that just because you live in the king's house that you're the only Jew who will get out of this alive. If you persist in staying silent at a time like this, Help and deliverance will arrive for the Jews from someplace else, but you and your family will be wiped out. Who knows? Maybe you were made queen for such a time as this. There is a missionary named Elizabeth Elliot. I'm sure all of you have heard of her. I tell this story. I think about this story. It still gives me goosebumps. She finds out that her husband has died while on mission to reach an unreached tribe. And she does something that I don't think many people expected her to do. She gets on a plane, she flies down to where he died, she finds the people that killed him, and then she stays there for two years, and she leads them to Christ. And so someone asked her, why? She said, this job has been given to me to do. Therefore, it is a gift. Therefore, it is a privilege. Therefore, it is an offering I make to God. Therefore, it is to be done gladly if it is to be done for him. Here, not somewhere else. Here, I may learn God's way. In this job, not in some other, God looks for faithfulness. One of the qualities that the king liked about Esther, other than her beauty, was that she had good sense. And Esther knew that this situation did not look logically like it would end well for the people of God. She had to ask a question to herself and answer it. Do God's purposes depend ultimately on faith and power in the hands of his people? Or does it depend on The faithfulness of God and his power in his own hands. And what happens when the people of God would like to be faithful like Esther is about to do, but they have no power? Esther's story brings both of these questions right there. Faithfulness and powerlessness of God's people. Does a lack of any one of these means that God's plans are done? So she says to Mordecai, I will go to the king Though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Esther takes a step of faith, not knowing what will happen. But she sees now that God has been at work. She sees him moving in the details, in the heart of the king. Now, this is where it starts to become the unseen providence. We don't know. Some odd things happen that we never understand. For some reason, the king has not seen Esther for 30 days. Yet when she goes to see him, he is elated. Come on in. He offers her the entire kingdom. And so she goes, she sits with him. She says, let's have dinner. They have dinner twice. We go beyond reason when we step out in faith. You can philosophize all day long about what it means to be in the presence of God. But Esther sat in that palace. For six years, Mordecai told her not to tell anyone that she was a Jew. That means she ate things she probably didn't want to eat. She did things she probably didn't want to do. And I don't know that she heard the name of God as she knows God the entire time. She stepped out on faith into the I don't know why. And then something happens to Mordecai, not Mordecai, Xerxes after the second dinner. We don't know what, but for some reason, he can't sleep. And then another thread that you've probably forgotten about gets pulled. He calls his people and says, I can't sleep. Read something to me. They grab the Chronicles. And in the Chronicles, they read about a man named Mordecai. Mordecai saves the king. He's like, oh, yeah, six years ago. That happened. I'm paraphrasing. He says, what did I do for Mordecai? They said, nothing. That's an odd thing for a king. Usually they are very quick to love on their people who do good for them. And so immediately he turns and he corrects that wrong. And he corrects it on the night before the massacre is to occur. And on the day that he's supposed to die, Mordecai is now riding on top of the king's horse. He's being praised. Haman is moving him. And then the story has come to an end. I don't have time to do the rest of the story. Read it. It's amazing. There's a party that's about to happen. Read about the party. But I wanna stop for a minute and look at something that Esther did. It was very unique. She orchestrated and coordinated all the pieces of the things that she could do to make this story work. And the rest of it, she left in God's hands. I went to a conference a while back And there was this guy, and he kept saying in every session, God's will, God's bill. And I thought, that is the oddest, like, simplest thing I've ever heard. So I talked to this man, and after I spoke to him for about 20 minutes, I understood. The things that are necessary for the components of all of our lives to move, the things that go in the background of which we do not know. No one else could cover that bill. No one. So God's plans are independent of us. Maybe we are walking on God's foundation of truth, but it's running through us. That brings us to the last aspect of Esther's character and what it says for us. The last aspect of her character we'll look at is Esther's simultaneous openness to being used by God and trust and grace and the omnipotence of God. Even with all of the maids, she had it made, delicious food, comfort of a life in the palace, she still stood up and she said what she had to say. And and the oddest part of the story is that after six years in that palace, she still listened to Mordecai. Here's what it says. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. This means she listens to Mordecai's prompting, He prompts her to be open to God's will, and then she takes a leap of faith and courage. Courage is gained from fasting, from praying with her people, from mounting together in lamentation. A plan is formulated and it is executed without fear. Esther is a witness to all of us. Everyone who hears her story, her testimony, builds our trust in God, which in turn fuels our faith in God. And it's supposed to be a story that when we encounter moments in our life where there's a second to choose, we're likely to choose to be the vessel of God. But this is a true story because what you see in this is humanity on display. Esther was not perfect. She was very likely in the middle of doing things she should not do from a Jewish custom She should not drink food she should not eat, things that were against the law, but she was human and she was open and she responded in faith ultimately to facilitate a huge piece of God's story and another example of his protection and provision for his people. But she was also prudent. She didn't just go. Sometimes you feel this desire that when God says jump, we're like, how high, and we just go. Sometimes we stop. And there are moments where it is now or never But the reality is sometimes it takes us a minute, whether it's due to second guessing, whether we're not really sure if that was a bad slice of pizza. Is God really saying that? Should I go see a doctor? So we talk to people. We talk to our friends. We discern. And then when it's time, we act. And the last thing we see her do and Mordecai is they go to community. They take it to the people of God. When Mordecai realizes that he was in trouble, that his actions had just sunk, that entire nation, he gathered his people together. He lamented. He cried. He wailed. And he did it together. Even in our biggest mistakes, all the decisions that you think you've made that are in conflict with God's will, we can learn these two things from Mordecai. God's plan prevailed anyway. And he sought out rather than pulled away from the community when he messed up. (sighs) You really should finish the story because we spend a lot of time in our lives thinking about all the ways and all the notions of what we can do to mess things up, to mess up God's plans. And all of us will experience at different points. I experience it at different points. I have imposter syndrome at different points. But the question seems to come, When you're a teenager and when you're in your 20s, very, very fast, it's rapid. You have lots of decisions to make and you don't wanna mess them up. So you find yourself trying to figure these things out. Later in life, you might find yourself making a U-turn after you've gone in one direction the whole time. And you wonder, oh my goodness, is this the thing that I should do? What career should I aim for? Should I have gone to a different college? What college should I attend? Is what I'm doing right now going to mess up my future? And maybe I really should get rid of that social media account Who should I date? Should I date? What is God telling me to do? Should I spend all of my social capital to be comfortable or should I help protect my classmate with this social capital? Am I missing his call? Am I going to mess up God's plan that he has for me that will make it so that I don't have the best life that he wants? To answer our original question, and we won't understand how or why, the answer is no. If God wants it to happen, it will happen. His purposes cannot fail. Our failing to live in faithfulness to God cannot thwart his plans. But listen to what Mordecai says to Esther. He said, deliverance for the Jews will come from somewhere else. But do not think that our house will not be destroyed there's a lot of things we can do as we look at our lives and to help one another to stay in line with God's purposes so that we can be in his hands we can be on our feet standing on his foundation as we just sang in that beautiful song one connect with believers when you go to college high schoolers find your people (coughs) Mordecai calls his people be open to God's call, but at the same time, be prudent, especially if you think you're not hearing Him right. And the last thing is remember, witness. God's goodness is happening all the time. We can't see it, but when you see it, witness it. The scroll of Esther was the last book to go into the Old Testament for the same reason why, when I was a kid growing up, if something amazing happened, our pastor would tell us, you better stand up and testify. Let us pray. Lord, today, may we walk on your firm foundation, as Esther did, ready to dance with you as as vessels, ready to be part of your plans as you orchestrate all of the circumstances that, that swirl around our kids, that swirl around our lives, all the pressure, God, we know that you want things for our good, and we want to be part of it for your glory. Amen.